The Cambie Report was produced and recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Quequitlam peoples. It's September 22nd, 2022, and there are 23 short days left until the Vancouver municipal elections. This is the Camby Report After Dark. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Yeah, recording late. You've done a full shift tonight. Yep. The Eagles are playing. My toddler was up. No, my toddler wasn't up all night last night. My baby was up all night last night. So both just running on. Full cylinders here at the Canby Report today. Oh, yeah. It's a hell of a time. And if you want to support us, be part of the fuel injection system that powers this finely tuned machine, visit patreon.com slash Report. Yes, patreon.com slash Report. Yes, patreon.com slash Report. Your search for citizen journalism in Metro Vancouver, the city of Vancouver and its environs. This lovely little slice of the lower mainland that we call home, we report, you give us money to report. And in exchange for that, you get access to our Slack channel and other things. Let's start on today. Patreon.com slash report. Let's start on today's show. The full lists of candidates are out. Everyone who had their name put forward had their chance to withdraw, and we now had the randomized ballot draw in Vancouver. So the official what the ballots will look like is out. One thing I forgot that they were adding for this year is numbers. The candidates are all numbered. So you can prep your ballot a little easier and hopefully find all of the hundred, all the 27 people you want to vote for out of 137 on what is, I think, still a slightly smaller list than last time, but it is smaller than it's last still obnoxious. time. And we will be Oh, yeah, it's quite a thing. And we were going to be talking with someone a little later in the show about what this particular number means for Vancouver and its democracy and whether or not we should be considering electoral reform. But let's actually get to the numbers. Those particular numbers, I will say, are going to come in useful for when we are going to be releasing endorsements later on in the electoral season. So stay tuned for that. But... 15 candidates are running for mayor. Yeah, there's the five main ones we talk about regularly with their political parties, and then a large number of independents, people like Francois Renault, who's run before, Louis Villegas, uh, Mike Hansen, who refused to provide a photo even, lots of interesting characters. One who stood out because he's run, sorry, one who stood out because this individual has run many times is Golok Zed Bude. Because I has run? Yes. Because I has run? One new thing they've also allowed one new thing they've also allowed is for candidates to put forward their preferred pronouns beside their name. So candidates like Kennedy Stewart and Ken Sim are saying he him as well as Mark Marison, he him his. Fred Harding and Colleen Hardwick opted not to provide their pronouns. Maybe ask them when you see them how they prefer to be referred to, even though Fred Harding has his Chinese characters beside his name for now. It's only polite. Like, this is the thing, is that what the fuck are these people opposed to? What is disclosing your pronouns 
or refusing to disclose your pronouns? What does that, what kind of political statement are you saying? I'm not exactly sure why I don't necessarily think we should be voting on the basis of sex or gender alone. In fact, I definitely think we shouldn't. But if we want to be talking about these people, I think it's only polite that if I'm going to be referring to uh, Golak Bude, I refer to I as... Myself. I. Yes, Golak chose the pronouns I, me, myself, and individual, which, good for myself. It's a choice. Like, the pronouns are serious because there are non-binary candidates running in this election. There are some on, I was just trying to scroll down, I think Park Board, Amy Evil Genius Fox chooses she or they for council. They've run a number of times. The Evil Genius's platforms, I just do want to mention, are to cause a housing crash, create a solar punk utopia, and enter the spice monopoly. We are a major wasabi producer. So lots of candidates running, most of them serious, some of them there for... Some of them are serious. Some of them think they're serious, but definitely aren't. <laughs> the only other thing I'll... <laughs> Those yeah. are my favorites. Those, I 100% are my favorite candidates. The only other thing I'll flag is there's one additional electoral organization registered. That's the Affordable Housing Coalition. They have one council candidate, Eric Redman, a former or a current engineer. He is, as far as I can tell, running a very similar platform to Progress Vancouver just very like pro-housing stuff. So maybe check out Eric if you love housing. Although as we've seen in the past, startup parties are really hard to get off the ground. Good luck to you, Eric. Yeah. In like, this is like one of those things where even the most successful of startup parties, like Yes Vancouver or Progress Vancouver, have a hard time electing candidates. And maybe that's going to shift. Maybe they're going to get one or two on council this time around. But Smart money is still against them. Indeed. And that's something I think you can get into with Stuart Prest about whether electoral reform might reduce the barriers to entry in politics here in Vancouver. The last thing I have to say about the candidate list is Vancouver has its plan your vote tool, vancouver.ca slash plan dash your dash vote. There you can go pick all of the candidates you want, where you want to vote, and it'll make a handy printable sheet that you can take with you to go vote. We too are going to be making such a handy printable sheet that you should take with you to vote. Uh, It will break down some of the pros and cons of the candidates and why we've decided to support or oppose who we have decided to support or oppose. So I'm just going to tease that a little more. I am excited about our endorsement process. I think we have, even though I have talked about how this is a little bit of a disheartening election, I am beginning to get a little excited I think there are good candidates running. I think this is a chance for some real change in this city. And it is a little dispiriting at times. I think we've got a real chance to elect a functional council this time around if voters play their cards. I'm going to be honest. I have been starting to go through the list of 22 candidates who are running for the eight seats here in Coquitlam. And... I am far more optimistic about Vancouver than like Coquitlam. It's not that a bunch of NIMBYs are about to take over Vancouver. A bunch of NIMBYs aren't about to take over Coquitlam or anything, but just there's a real lack of inspiration. It's so vague when you get out to the burbs. People are just like, I like affordable housing and it's great. What does that actually mean to you? We don't know. We don't know. And this is the problem with like, 
forward Vancouver's housing plan, for one thing, which we talked about on last week's episode, that, that thing was... It, it can't even be called a dumpster fire because the whole thing didn't have enough fuel to catch light. Like, that, that, that policy is an embarrassment, and they should do better. I've been told more is coming in terms Holy of... Holy fucking better be. <laughs> we have a little bit more to talk about forward in a minute, and not housing, but let's throw it over to your chat with Stuart Prest. Joining us today is Stuart Prest. Stuart is a PhD from the University of British Columbia in political science. Thank you so much for joining us, Stuart. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So we've got a huge amount of candidates running for election in this particular go-round, 137 candidates vying for 27 positions, 15 candidates running for mayor, 59 for council, and 32 for parks, 31 for schools. What what does this mean for Vancouver's democracy? I guess, in one sense, it's the best of times and the worst of times. That You <laughs> want to see a vibrant political culture, and Vancouver clearly has that. There are Many debates happening on a lot of issues. People are really paying attention to what's happening in the city and people are looking to get involved in in different ways. So that's all great. That's really positive. But what we are seeing here as well is that the conversation has become a lot more fragmented than just a few years ago. And Vancouver's electoral system, particularly for council and for, for the boards, is really starting to creak under the the weight of all those different opinions being represented by the candidates. So what is the problem exactly as you see it? Like, where does our current electoral system let us down? It's a good question. Vancouver has an unusual system. It's in many cities in Canada, you're likely to see a ward-based electoral system where the much like our provincial federal politics, the city is divided up into little regional pockets and and you vote for a single representative from each of those pockets. And that has a tendency to reduce the number of candidates that appear on your ballot and it simplifies the choice somewhat. It has some other effects as well that may not be as positive. It tends to encourage people to to run on the basis of narrow issues that, that matter to a particular neighborhood without having to appeal to a larger cross-section. Vancouver's has a, a different system. We have this one at large ballot. So it's like the city as a whole is a single jurisdiction, a single district, and then anybody who wants to be on council is going to run. And so if you have two parties, as Vancouver used to have, that tends to rise the number of, of choices the voters face. So if you like a left of center option, perhaps you vote for Coke back in the day. And if you like a more right of center option, then you vote for NPA. But that system, the sort of two, two and a half, three party system started to break down. We saw COPE give way to vision and the, and we also saw the NPA more recently start to break down. So we've seen as these political, de- political debates have gone on, the views that candidates are trying to express no longer fall into this neat two party, one axis division between left and right. We have parties of the left that are fav- in favor of new housing and additional development, urban densification. And we have parties of the left that are more skeptical of the pace of change and the way in which that that plays out. We have that same divide showing up on the right. So housing is, a, in particular, I think, a, an issue that has really fragmented the, the political landscape. And there are other issues like that as well. And generally speaking, as the debates become more complex, we have different views on different types of issues being expressed. The system becomes more unwieldy. 
we end up with this competition of faction versus faction, where if you can mobilize 20% of the citywide vote to support your particular slate, then you can win, even uh, conceivably, even though you represent the views of a distinct minority of Vancouverites. Okay, so how does that create problems for our democracy? Like, what does that mean in terms of like representation of these disparate views at the city level, and how could that be corrected? So both good questions. And the problem ultimately, it's a bit like the problem that we see at the federal system, federal level at the moment, when you think about the Liberal Party wins election after election, currently with about 30%, 32% of the vote. And so that means more than two thirds of Canadians are trying to elect a party other than the one that seems to inevitably end up with the reins of power. And and so that can lead to a real frustration with government. And we see this at the federal level where places that consistently vote for opposition parties, notably Alberta and Saskatchewan, look at the governing party as being less legitimate somehow. It was giving to extreme uh, frustration at the direction of the country. You can imagine something analogous. It wouldn't be exactly the same. We don't have the same degree of polarization necessarily at the Vancouver level, but you have the same kind of phenomenon where a party that's electing a number of councillors representing a, a minority of the total citizenry of the city and perhaps a small majority, if the vote is really fragmented, we have nine parties that have some name recognition, you may not need much more than 20, 25% of the vote to pull down a handful of council seats. And then you end up claiming to have the legitimacy of a democratic election, but you're really representing the views of a distinct minority. And people within the city then may come to look at the government as not being for them, not representing their interests in any meaningful way. And on the path to that, you have voters having to wade through all that complexity where you have to choose between, well, we have these nine different parties or there's more than nine, I think it's 10 or 11 actually, that appear with at least one councillor on, on the ballot and a handful of independents. And so just to figure out who do you want to vote for, your 10 votes for council and your vote for the mayor, you have to wade through an incredible amount of information. And no one really has no one really has the time to, to learn a lot about even minority of those two total counselors. And so we end up with people making best guesses or perhaps tuning the whole thing out. And of those voters, just a minority will end up being represented potentially on council. So how would that be different under a different type of system? Say we still had wards. If we had the same kind of splintered political culture, wouldn't we end up with nine parties running nine council candidates in every ward and wouldn't we still have the same amount of information to wade through to an extent uh, there there is a, a sort of an overarching trend where with uh, the more complex political processes it it becomes harder to get different coalitions of candidates to to cooperate on a single platform so you may end up with nine candidates at the local level it's still easier to fall to to understand the difference between nine or ten candidates at a neighborhood level than you know, 50 60 whatever the number is for a council in a particular election but yeah so you are trying to reduce the scope of the problem that, that problem still fundamentally as long as as long as the parties think that perhaps we can get more voters than the next biggest party you're still going to have this fragmentation and this refusal to to work together and that so there is there you're not going to fully deal with the problem but you may make it a little bit more manageable with the ward system and you also guarantee that within 
that council, you will have geographic representation. So you'll be hearing from people in the city from, from say, Kitts and Dunbar area, but also from downtown and also from East Van, also from South Vancouver. You're ensuring that somebody will be there from the different parts of the city. So you're ensuring a certain degree of diversity of representation, where under the current system, conceivably, you could have 10 councillors all from the same three-block area and the, who, who win that minority of support, the sufficient to win the election. And so you you increase the representation in that sense. And that can encourage a more diverse council as well. But it's not a a full solution. And it also introduced this division of, of among councillors so that each is not speaking for Vancouver, but speaking for a particular corner of the city. And you have councillors potentially with less awareness, less interest in trying to put forward solutions that, that work for everyone, but rather will guarantee them their re-election in their own neighbourhood. Sure. And, and that has been a criticism of the ward system in places like Toronto, where incumbency rates are very high. If wards don't work and are perfectly, and if an at-large system doesn't work perfectly, what's the conversation that we should be having? Where should we go from here? I think having a conversation about whether Vancouver would prefer a ward system is a conversation is worth having, because there is some benefit to having that local representation. But I, I think at the end of this election, it may be worth taking a step back and considering what are some other alternatives. You could have a system that mimics some of the proportional representation solutions uh, that have been proposed for BC in the last few years. You could have a version of, say, a single transferable vote for, for council, say, divide the city into to two or three regions and elect four or five councillors from each region, you would end up still with a number of different parties. So assuming that we were always going to have this division of candidates into to many different factions, but at least it reduces a little bit more of a manageable ballot. You're, uh, you're only looking at half the candidates running or a third of the candidates running for office, and you're able to rank among them. So you're able to have a more nuanced expression of what your views are. That means that the overall, the, the mechanics of a single transferable vote, as long as you have about five, five councillors elected per district, you're going to end up with a result that is broadly proportional. So that means everyone's going to be able to point to councillor and say, my vote helped elect somebody up there. There's going to be ideological representation for just about everyone in the city. Not everybody, but most people. And that means that, uh, that so that's one potential approach. You could look at something like a mixed member proportional system where some people are elected in that kind of first past the post ward based system. But then you do some topping up to ensure that parties that are capturing votes from across the city, but not localized in a particular region are still going to be represented. And so that would be another way to, to use wards, but to do so in a more proportional way that, so that everybody looks at council and says, this council, somebody is there who has my interests at heart, even if they're not from my very specific neighborhood. I can see my views showing up in the debates. And that does, not everyone's going to be part of every decision taken. You still may have a very divided council, acrimonious debate at times, but the representation will be truer to what Vancouverites actually think, and that that can reinforce trust in the system, that my views are being heard. It's not just a competition of mobilization where the 30% of Vancouverites who tend to support one party are going to win the day over the others. Okay, so both of those systems sound like they are still going to require a fair amount of information to be processed by a voter, but you think that the trade-offs for those systems is that it gives people more of a stake in their local government, like more of a, an ability to see their voices represented in their 
elected representatives. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. One of the things that if you have a first past the post, if you're really trying to cut down on the number of parties, you should have a small number of writings that just elect a single candidate. The extreme would be just one vote for for, say, a mayor or something like that, then you're only going to have so many candidates to, to look at. And particularly if, say, you have a runoff system or something like that, where you're going to have to convince half the citizens to vote for you at some point that can build a need to build larger coalitions to say, we are going to support this particular party, this particular mayoral candidate as a, a single voice for a broad coalition of voters to try to build bigger tents. So you can do that to try to simplify the overall choices being made for voters. But it's always going to be a trade-off between trying to force parties to work together before they show up on the ballot versus allowing multiple parties to be able to compete and to win some representation. And then they're going to have to find ways to work together once they're on council. Sure. I mean, at some level, isn't the problem that we do, in fact, have this breakdown of views into this multi-axis system, like multi-axis ideology system that we have right now, where we have development skeptics and proponents on both the left and the right, where we have parties like Cope or Cope and One City and Forward on on the left, who I think span a kind of spectrum of perspectives on development, that that doesn't seem like it would go away under under this system. So you're saying that this would more encourage them to work together prior to showing up on the ballot. Some call, yeah, you can try to find ways to make it harder to be elected without winning a broad, a large number of votes. And that will force parties to work together before they even show up on the ballot. So they, they work together to choose nominees. And, and so these kinds of proportional systems, you're right, they're not going to, to reduce the number of different parties that are, are vying for office. So it, I guess one question we don't fully know the answer to, but it seems like there's this broad trend in politics, not just in Vancouver, but elsewhere, where Politics is breaking out of a simple left-right dichotomy, and voters over time are supporting more parties. So we see that at the federal level in Canada, some of them are regional-based, some of them are issue-based. We see that in other jurisdictions as well, where the UK was once a reliable two, two-and-a-half-party system. We see additional parties coming online there. And on. The US is a real outlier in the world where it's still politics is forced into this two-party divide. So if you think that the complexity of politics means that we're going to have more views that need representation, we just we're not going to come back to a simple two-party system that the politics is too complex to be represented in that way. Then we just it, we're left with what's the best system to manage that complexity. And a ward system is one way to to help manage that complexity and ensure regional representation within a jurisdiction. But it, it comes at that cost of uh, electing candidates who may be more focused on local issues than citywide issues. Proportional systems is another, and, and it may not lead to a proportional result in the same way that, say, we see at the federal level. Proportional systems ensure that everyone who votes can point to someone on council that represents their views, or just about everybody can. And But it 
it really embraces that complexity and is, is instead trying to give voters tools to manage it perhaps a little more effectively. So if this is a new normal where politics is going to be fragmented, fractionalized, and conversations running in multiple directions at, at once, then a, a change of a voting system might be a way to help voters to make more meaningful choices. If your theory is instead that this is just a moment, we're going to have new consolidation into a new two-party system before very long, or a new three-party system, say, then perhaps the need for change isn't so pressing. We'll have a sort of evolutionary moment, and most parties will die, a couple will thrive, and things will go on as they, they did before. I'm skeptical of that proposition, but that is another point of view one could have. All right. So for practical advice, what are the questions that we should be asking of our candidates when we see them on the doorstep or in candidates' debates? I think in terms of democratic reform, do you think, or just really? Yeah, in, in, in terms of democratic reform. I think it's really interesting to see what do different candidates see as being the most valuable form of democracy. Someone like Councillor Hardwick has, for instance, really tried to focus on the importance of neighborhood associations and saying we need to hear from the people who live in districts about what any change may mean for them to try to really lift up the voices of those who are currently in, in a place. That will lead to certain kinds of implications. It would tend to be hearing from those who may be skeptical of change because they like things the way they are. It is less likely to lift up the voices, to amplify the voices of those who are currently not comfortably housed within the current situation, for instance, in hearing the need for new developments, additional housing. So hearing about the kinds of fora that, that candidates are interested in in advocating for and supporting will tell you something about the kinds of decisions that they may be interested in. So that's one kind of question to ask. Another would simply be uh, trying to find out what do you think makes for an effective council? Are you are you interested in seeing a council that represents the city as a whole? Do would you favor changes that would allow neighborhoods or particular districts to have a stronger voice in the form of a ward-based system? What do you think of the idea of trying to change the system in a way that would create a more proportional result so that everybody can point to the champion of their particular political view on council, even if it doesn't come from their corner of the city? Those are the kinds of questions that might start to elucidate. What would that particular counselor favor in terms of democratic reform? So let me ask you specifically, what difference would wards make to Vancouver? Wards would do a couple of things. They would ensure the sort of local regional representation where every corner of the city is going to have someone representing them even if it's not necessarily someone supported by many of the residents. It's that sort of first-past-the-post logic that we see at federal and provincial levels. Given that each ward would only be electing one councillor, it likely would reduce the number of parties competing as well. I don't think, given just the nature of politics and the complexity today, we would ever get back to, to I'd say, a two-party system. But there's a kind of like Highlander, there can be only one logic to a ward-based system, first-past-the-post system, and that would encourage politicians to, whenever possible, try to find a single candidate, a single party that they agree on. So while we don't come back to two or three parties, we might see only two or three or four parties running in a given ward, even though there's going to be more than that across the city as a whole. And some wards may have five or six. You could have more parties than just the left versus right di traditional di dynamic. I don't think our politics compressed to that anymore. But that 
It's it's called a Duvergerian law. From if you're interested in the political science of it, this is a law that, that suggests that first past the post systems tend to tend towards two parties. And that's because of this expectation: you need to win more votes than the next person, and the easiest way to do that is to reduce the number of candidates that think remotely like you. And so some of that logic would operate in words. But I think we still would have some of the complexities that we see, where some voters are really strong on environmental issues. Some voters are really strong on development issues. Some voters are really strong on taxation issues or rule of law issues. And those, some of those compress to a single left versus right dynamic, but a lot of them go in distinct directions. So I think we're still going to see a diversity of choice, which still leaves open this possibility that council will be made up of a series of councillors who didn't win the support of a majority of their of their voters, of the voters of the district, but just more than the next person on the list. And that can create that similar kind of situation that we can see under the current situation where uh, council doesn't really represent the views of most Vancouverites. And that can lead to a loss of, of trust and responsiveness of the system. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about how we might change the council electoral system. What about the voting system that we have for mayor? What needs to change there? Well, that's another interesting one. And we do see, I think, some interaction right now where with between council and the mayor's race, where when you have 10 councillors and they're vying in this at-large system, that, that is one of the things that's encouraging the, the number of parties that, that we see out there. And so we, we see a number of different mayoral candidates competing, captaining some of these tickets. And so we see that same kind of, of logic uh, operating in the mayoral race. We're saying, I don't need to convince a majority of Vancouverites to vote for me. I just need to convince more Vancouverites than are voting for anyone else. It becomes this kind of factional mobilization game where I just need to mobilize my 30% or whatever the number may be. If it's If there are five competitive mayoral candidates, it really doesn't take that much of a share of the vote to, to win the seat outright. And again, there can be only one mayor. So this is where we often will see some kind of ranked ballot being used. And so that can allow for a kind of instant runoff mechanism where if you want to vote for one mayoral candidate, but you wouldn't mind seeing a second one take the office, then if your first choice loses out and is at the bottom of the list in terms of the number of votes left, then their name is crossed off and your vote simply transfers to the next candidate such that whoever ultimately wins the mayor's office is going to have at least some support from a majority of, of voters in the city, even if it is on a, a subsequent balloting round. So we see different versions of that. For instance, the president of France is elected in a, a two-vote runoff is another way to do this, where essentially, but the, uh, so I'll talk about that system in a second, but where we use this sort of instant runoff uh, approach, uh, most parties in Canada use some version of that to elect their elect their leaders within the party itself. So it is something that we do see practiced in Canada. The presidential system is one where you have a first round to to choose who are going to be the final two contestants. And so that's a bit of a mobilization challenge. And then the second round of voting, you have a second ballot cast at a later date. And that is between the two finalists, essentially. And so that ensures that there is at least some broader appeal for whoever wins a mayoralship, even if it's not quite as, as specific as that round by round effect. So either one of those would ensure that whoever ultimately wins the, the mayor's office and becomes mayor of the city is going to have some claim to represent a broad diversity of views as opposed to having some claim to be able to 
really mobilize a strongly passionate minority of voters to their cause and win out against all the other factions. Stuart, this has been a very interesting conversation. Do you have any final words of advice for our listeners? I would encourage you to all do your homework. As a professor of political science, I guess that's on brand. Uh, there are a number of resources out there trying to lay out what those counselors who are running for re-election have done the last time around. I just was po- posting a thread about that. If you want to look me up on Twitter, you're welcome to see that. Justin McElroy at CBC has put together some good summary packages showing where did the votes land in the previous council. Also trying to figure out what issues really matter to you because different parties are going to stress different packages of solutions, trying to locate themselves in this that two-dimensional space where they may be more left of center, more, more inclusive and favoring a greater government expenditure, or more right of center where they're more skeptical of government expenditure and perhaps less bothered about actively cultivating a more inclusive city, let's put it that way. And they may be at the same time more in favor of rapid action to respond to the housing affordability crisis, really trying to find ways to open up both market housing and non-market-based housing. Or they may be a little more skeptical of the need for rapid action and instead concerned about preserving the current building character of the city as well. And so really trying to find out where the parties stand on those issues that matter to you, whether it's taxation, whether it's inclusivity, whether it's housing, or some other basket of issues, law and order is another one that is burbled up, then that will help you figure out how to wade through the morass. And you're likely going to need to find a couple of parties that you're comfortable with because no party is running a full slate to run the table. So you're going to have to figure out what are the couple choices that you're most comfortable with and go from there, whether you like an all an all housing development kind of council, or if you're trying to find those who are going to be most cautious about development, most cautious about taxation and so on, you'll find there's some commonalities. And so you're just going to have to dig a little bit. And using the party platforms will be an important guideline because so many of these parties are new. Half the parties didn't exist until this election or just before. Give yourself a little bit of time. Don't be afraid to to ask for help and listen to fantastic podcasts like this one that provide insight into the the nuances of the Vancouver and Lower Mainland municipal politics. Thank you so much for joining us. Stuart Press is on Twitter at S-T-E-W-A-R-T-P-R-E-S-T. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. Have a great day. You too. Thanks so much for having me on. Bye. Boy, wasn't that fun. I had such fun talking to Stuart. Yeah, I'm sorry I couldn't be there in the future. I know. It was to be great. <laughs> Speaking of going forward and back in time and everything... Forward Vancouver announced a plank of their platform, the Health Addictions and Response Team. They have proposed having a 311 number that would allow you to call health and addictions response teams for people experiencing homelessness, mental health, and addictions difficulties, a sort of rapid response, specialized team of mental health and addictions officers. This is the same thing that one city proposed, as far as I can tell, with a slightly different name. I think they called them pacts. These are hearts. In either case, the idea is creating a non-police emergency line for those kind of situations. Yeah. And I think it's very important that they recognize that, as they say, being homeless or mentally ill is not a crime. And most of these situations are not emergencies. Uh, The important thing is de-escalation. The important thing is immediate food, water, and clothing. Emergency housing is the thing that they say that they're going to connect these people to. Do we have that emergency housing? I don't know. 
like it's great that we have a service that theoretically will connect people to housing. What's more important is that housing exists. Yep. I find these announcements both really interesting in timing as well. The province just announced the results of its prolific offender inquiry where a bunch of cities were mad about prolific offenders, people committing crimes, going to jail, coming out and committing more crimes. And it was a minor brouhaha earlier this year. And so the province said, okay, we'll do an investigation. And the top line recommendation they had is actually a service like this is a de-escalation service. So it seems well-timed for forward Vancouver and one city. The province it might also be on there. Of course, lots of recommendations get tabled in reports to the province and then disappear. But we could stop caging people and then sending them to crime university. But that's a whole other thing. That's getting outside the municipal jurisdiction. Oh, no, I've exceeded the ambit of the podcast. Over at Parks Board, though, ABC, who we've mentioned is no longer against the Park Board entirely, has a policy for the park board to implement something they describe as groundbreaking to address misogyny, homophobia, and sexual violence. And it would be to create safe sport officers to work within park board facilities. This is interesting. I'm not, frankly, passing judgment quite yet. A lot of ABC's platform is like up my alley. Like, I, I think that, like, dispositionally, I am more aligned with. I, frankly, neither ABC nor Forward Vancouver, both because both of them have like serious flaws. But if you could mash them I, all I together, like market, I like a market-oriented approach to things that like ABC tends to promote. And I think that misogyny, homophobia, and sexual violence in sport are bad. I think that this is an interesting program that deserves more like study, and I, I am interested in seeing them pursue it if they elect some people to council. Yeah, they talk about this being based on similar programs in Australia and Netherlands. The idea would be to have officers. And when I first saw officers, I was like VPD. But no, this is like czars, just people to not even czars, commissars, (laughs) people able to quote, provide independent oversight of league or club operations, and to provide EDI training and assistance in the development of inclusivity policies. So it's basically advisors available to organizations that regularly rent park board facilities. Uh, It seems like it would all be voluntary opt-in, but they're framing this in light of all the scandals around Hockey Canada that have come out, USA Gymnastics they flag as well. So a really novel policy, and I do like to see that. It is. It's good to have interesting new policy. It's bad when those policies are, like, totally disqualifying. And I view all the ABC policies in light of their totally ridiculous promise to hire 100 new cops and 100 new nurses. Like, it, everything that they have said since then seems, in my mind, a little tainted. But I am looking forward to exploring this policy more in the debates that come. Too bad it's a park board policy, so it'll probably never be talked about again, Matthew. Ah, uh, balls. Are there even park board debates? Sports balls. One of the old ABC policies you might remember was the 3x3 policy, the idea that for permitting, there would have 
three days for simple permits, three weeks for pre-approved builds, and three months for major works to really drive the city staff to hit deadlines and meet clear backlogs. That policy, I think, was driven by strategist Kit Souter, who used to be involved with ABC. He's no longer over there. He's now with One Burnaby, who has just announced that policy as part of their platform for Burnaby Council. And Kit, like, Kit is a smart guy. I think that, I, I think that it's a great policy and he's been like very active in Vancouver politics. He's been head of one of the commissions. I don't specifically remember off the top of my head, which planning or development commission he was involved in, in Vancouver, but he is, I, I think someone who thinks about this type of stuff thoughtfully and I am impressed at like this type of commitment to getting homes built. I am very much on the side of the idea that this housing crisis is still a supply side problem and and this would go a long way to addressing it. Yeah, Kit was on the Renters Advisory Committee and actually there we go. He actually got along apparently really well with Tanya Webking who's now running for Cope, which is like the most unlikely duo of Vancouver politics, but they issued a number of joint statements together that was like, huh, pro-renter statements, that is. (laughs) Over in (laughs) Burnaby, though, the one Burnaby platform's pretty interesting. It's a very Yimby platform. It's a upzone the whole city of Burnaby, uh, flexible zoning for families everywhere, four floors and corner stores makes it in there, and higher density on arterials and within 15 minutes of major transit. It's what we need. Burnaby is one of the best served areas in the metro region for rapid transit. They have two and a half major SkyTrain lines running through them. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, some of those SkyTrain lines are like severely underutilized. SkyTrain stations rather are severely underutilized. It's important that we have access to industrial parks and it's important that industrial workers be able to get to work. But also, having Greenfield or Brownfield right around SkyTrain stations, when that can be used for like viable housing property or medium industrial, medium commercial, it's an underutilized, it's not highest and best use, basically. Yeah. Though, notably, Burnaby has been building a lot more than Vancouver in many ways in recent years. But within the one Burnaby platform, there's a number of other realms. I don't think we need to go through it all. We'll link to it in the show notes, but they highlight the car 87 program in Vancouver and want to mirror that. That's the thing that Ken Sim wants to do a hundred by a hundred of, but they want just a slight increase to try that in Burnaby. They're not talking about hiring a hundred cops, but they are talking about doing community policing programs, which it's unclear a bit more about. They'd also hire more firefighters, allow safe drinking in parks, and cut traffic fatalities by half by 2030. So there's a lot of different realms to this. It's honestly... And this, this is important because Burnaby has had a number of traffic fatality incidents that have been like absolutely tragic and really just sad over the last number of months and years. And it's important to, to take a look at that because Burnaby is, I think, particularly poorly designed being an infill city. Yeah, it sucks. Uh, and 
Yeah, you would yeah. know then. <laughs> so what I think is interesting here is that one si- one Burnaby is launching really the strongest like challenge I think Burnaby has seen to the Burnaby Citizens Association, the BCA, in a long time. And that's the NDP affiliated. I think it's actually the only municipal party that's officially affiliated with the BCNDP. And it's had a chokehold on council for a lifetime. They lost one seat in the last election to the Greens, Joe Keithley. Other than that, it's been BCA. A number of them are independents now, since Mike Hurley defeated Derek Corrigan, and now Mike Hurley is acclaimed for the next election. But one Burnaby is putting forward a serious challenge with Mike Hillman now on council as having won the by-election, and we'll see where he goes from here. Yeah, I am looking forward to hearing more from one Burnaby, and all the best to them. Coming back into Vancouver via the SkyTrain and getting ready to change trains, Sky tr- the commercial Broadway station is going to be the first test of the new challenge as we have a new set of designs of the proposed Safeway redevelopment project that will come to council very soon after the election. And this, is, this project looks great, but it's a mess. Yeah, man. I really wish council could have gotten their act together and heard, like, the actual proposal. It is good that they have actually made this project more ambitious. I thought that the project was underambitious before. And given that this is, like, one of the most important transit interchanges in the entire Lower Mainland, it's huge. It's, like, hugely important that we actually utilize that space. Um, I, I, like... I don't agree with all of the folks in the neighborhood who scream about mega towers, that's Safeway. That's bullshit. It's actually an ideal spot for high towers because it's basically in a valley. Yeah, they're looking at increasing the and, tower heights that were proposed from 29 stories to 38 and from 29 to 34. This gives them 34% or 37% increase in units, so going from 653 to 894. In other words, this is homes for 1,600 people in, like you said, the perfect ideal spot for it. Exactly. And we should all think about this when we are casting our ballots. We should be asking our city council candidates what they think about this particular project, because I think it is a good bellwether on on what they think about development in general. I think the one challenge for this is the thing that's been cut back on by the developer and i think this was even in a previous design was some of the communal space like child care is there's no child care in this building which is a bit wild uh there are community plazas there's a lot of retail on the ground level it's not the hill i would die on over this it's a vast improvement over a safe hill no because it's a valley <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, I want to see this go forward. Yeah. I don't want to see this project killed. You know what I also don't want to see killed? Mayor Brad West. Thankfully, the guy who was threatening him pled guilty to uttering threats against Mayor West and his family recently at a court hearing. He has now been conditionally discharged and placed on probation for a year. And he needs to stay far away from Brad West. Yeah. Municipal politics is a victim of Sayre's Law sometimes. 
Uh, I somewhat disagree with the idea that the stakes are low in municipal politics. I think the stakes are very high because this is the level of government that impacts our lives most significantly. It still can get very petty and anacrimonious. That being said, that is no excuse for any calls to violence or resorts to violence. And like, I've worked for politicians who have gotten death threats before. It's terrifying. It's like one of the most horrifying things that I've ever had to do is place a call to the sergeant at arms and talk about threats against my boss that we received in like scrawled letters on the fax machine. That was bad. No one should have to go through that. No one deserves that. People who enter politics, by and large, and I would say 99% of them, even if you disagree with them, they're doing it for basically the right reasons. They may be wrong, wrong-headed, and like antithetical to good in what their policies represent, but... They're not bad people, and they don't deserve Indeed. This. It sounds like this was a series of escalating interactions. It sounds like this man, and I'm not going to name him, was a pain in the ass, at least to many people in Coquitlam City staff. He it all escalated on in late 2021 when he, was, he confronted two individuals in Port Coquitlam with a replica gun, and that kind of led to the charges that were laid and then his guilty plea, but run for mayor against Brad West. You know what Brad West deserves? Yeah. You know what Brad West deserves? To have someone run against him in the municipal election. That train has left the station for the last time. As has another. The Stanley Park ghost train has been canceled for 2022. It did not run in 2020 because of the pandemic it didn't all run in 2021 because of the pandemic and technical difficulties and now they have said uh the train has not passed the tech safety bc inspection and they won't be running it journalist jordan armstrong says the statement warrants skepticism for several reasons notably that yes the engines are antique they're quite in production still Many are still operating around BC, and this really raises questions about the park board's ability to do basic things like maintain infrastructure. Yeah, it's a shame. Sorry, the train was cancelled last year because of aggressive coyotes. I should clarify, that's an important correction. Oh, dear. You remember that. I do, but also, the coyotes were attacking the train? (laughs) If the coyotes attacked the train, they fucking deserve to eat people. What? Like, that's some brave fucking canids right there. The park was unsafe. Bananas. That's bananas. Ask your park board candidates how they will save the train. What a bunch of humbug. It's unclear if they will be able to run it for Christmas, though. It sounds like they're going to try. But I thought that would give us a good Vancouver auto to talk about the train in Stanley Park. It's actually quite a bit older than I thought. Indeed. So thanks to... We were... Go ahead. Sorry. We end every episode with a Vancouverada, a little tidbit from Vancouver's history. The train in Stanley Park yes, is our thanks subject to today. Miss 604, the City of Vancouver's website, and Mortal Coil BC, who I'll mention in a bit for some of the background here, links in the show notes. 
The miniature railway was first set up in 1947 and featured just a child-sized train. Thankfully, Typhoon Freda came through in 1962 and cleared a six-acre part of Stanley Park to make room for an expansion to the train. I need to go back and read more about Typhoon Freda because it sounds like it fucked over the city quite badly. Yeah, holy shit. Uh, That let them open a full adult train in 1964. The main train they run is a replica of the Canadian Pacific Rail number 374. That's the famous train that first pulled that pulled the first transcontinental train into Vancouver in the 1880s. The train, when it was running, would carry about 200,000 passengers each year around a little two-kilometer track. Mortal Coil Performance was founded in 1991 and began running the Ghost Train and Bright Nights shows around 2001. It's a little lovely, charming piece of Vancouver history, and it, it is a shame to see it not continue this year. I hope that we will see the restoration of the Ghost Train the resurrection, if you will, of the ghost train. Yeah, so I can take my kids in years there. to come. And with that, we come to the end of the Cami Report After Dark for Leg and Boot Media. I'm Matthew Naylor. And I'm Ian Bushfield. Good night.